All right. This morning's a bit of a welcome back, I think, for some of us. Uh, we had Fourth of July weekend last week, and I'm told that some of us were traveling, either to see friends or family. So welcome back there. The Williams crew ventured out. We kept our social distance at the beach for a week. So very nice for us. I tell you, I got there and I donned my bathing suit and I began to wish I had a different kind of mask to cover this area. A little humbling there. My COVID-19 was showing. But uh, I've, I've decided to opt out of the term dad bod. And now I'm preferring father figure after that experience. But we had a good time. I hope you had a good 4th of July. We're back together. This is actually, if you're watching here online, the way for years our missionaries overseas have experienced church. They knew that a part of the church is meeting here in Raleigh, live, but they can't be there. So for years we've had our own church missionaries watching on video and it's kind of good for us to experience what they're having to go through regularly. So I'm thankful we're able to gather. Uh, as J.D. said, we are going to start a new series today, 2 Timothy 1. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can go there now. The way we structure these series is for you to kind of read along as we preach so that God will speak to you through the Bible. So Now's the chance to open up your device there. As it turns out, one way to learn and grow from these glorious ancient scriptures is to actually read it and hear it out loud. Okay, so what I'm going to do is just go ahead and read the first chapter for us today. That's where we'll be. <clears throat> it's not terribly long, 18 verses. I think we can handle it. But I want to read the chapter first from 2 Timothy 1, and then I'll pray, and then we'll talk about it together. So hopefully you've found it <clears throat> as we begin together. Here we go, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, and I, I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I might be filled with joy. Verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose 
and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Verse 15, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. That's chapter 1. Let's pray together. God, our Father, I do pray for grace and mercy and peace for the dear saints gathered here today for the members of Treasuring Christ Church. Though we cannot all be together today, let our hearts be one in Christ as we devote ourselves to you, God, in these brief moments. May our ears be open to hear your sweet, soothing voice of comfort. Our spirits be lifted by both the promise of life and the abolition of death. May our faith hold fast, for we know whom we have believed. Our love be as unrelenting as the tides that daily sweep our North Carolina beaches. May our courage be reinforced to shield your precious gospel. Our friendship prove as devout and loyal as Anesiphorus. And may our words be soaked in your spirit's power and goodness and our treasure ever be Christ Jesus as our appearing Savior. Amen. Amen. Kick all the way to the wall. Kick all the way to the wall. If you've ever been to a little kid's swim meet where some are trying to learn how to swim, that's a phrase that you'll hear. Kick all the way to the wall. Why? It's because when you're first learning to swim as a small child, you got about 25 meters. That's the length of the pool that you have to swim by yourself. And when you're in it, you see them all. It's kind of cute. They take off. They're buzzing and they get about 10 meters and then all of a sudden they slow down. Why? Because to kick a swimmer's flutter kick, you're using your big core muscle, and it's exhausting. So you can see all these kids who are learning to swim about halfway. They're still grinding with the arms like propellers, but their body begins to sink and sag because they're not kicking anymore. And about that time, from the end of the lane, the parents and the coaches will yell out, Kick all the way to the end of the wall. Kick to the wall. And as we read through 2 Timothy today, God knows that life can be like swimming laps. Life can be 
exhausting. It's easier at the start than it is as you go on. You can wear out, flame out, burn out, even freak out. Some of you are tempted to flat out want to quit. And God knows this. God's word for you today is kick all the way to the wall. Or as 2 Timothy might put it, persevere in the gospel in spite of suffering. Persevere in the gospel. Kick all the way to the wall because at the end of the race, standing right at the edge of the lane is Jesus himself. He is worth it to kick all the way to the end, to the wall. As we dive into chapter 1 here, I just want to offer two aids that will help you persevere in your walk with Jesus to keep kicking all the way to the end, all the way to the wall. They're both revolving around this notion, remembering the gospel. It's a lot about what 2 Timothy is about, how we can remember the gospel and just make it work in our lives. So I have two things this morning. Here's the first aid to help you. We'll call it, remember God's gospel work in you. Remember God's gospel work in you. If you're taking an outline, that's the first point. Remember God's gospel work in you. I'm going to show you where I get this from our text in the Bible today. Chapter 1 is going to draw us back to the lives of two men. You have the Apostle Paul and then his dear friend Timothy. That's what chapter 1 is about. So we're going to look at both of them so that you might remember God's gospel work in yourself. God's gospel work in you. Alright, so first there is Paul. When the letter was written, you have to take your mind back to A.D. 67, about, about 30 or so years after Jesus was crucified, A.D. 67. And Paul, the great preacher, has come to the end of his run of planting churches and writing. Paul finds himself under arrest in the belly of an Italian prison. He would have been lowered into the cistern-like dungeon of the great infamous Roman prison, the Maritime Prison. That's where he's writing this letter from. And he's sitting there on death row. He's already had his hearing. He knows that within a few months, even weeks, he's going to be executed. From what we know from the scriptures, he's cold. He's lonely. He misses his scriptures. They've taken that away from him. And in his last moments, he's remembering his dear friend Timothy. As he remembers, he remembers that he sent Timothy as a delegate to a church that Paul planted in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is on the coast there um, towards West Turkey, modern day. That's where Timothy's at. And so Paul is going to write him a letter. Paul's on his last leg. Timothy's younger. He's going to write Timothy and say, you got to kick all the way to the wall. You have to persevere in your walk with Jesus. He desires to see his friend one last time. As we dive in, here's the first thing I want you to remember about God's gospel work in you. 
hear what the word says. First, God wills you to life. That's what God's gospel work is doing in you. He is willing you to life. Here's where I get that. Look at verse 1 again. Listen to how Paul introduces himself. It's a very personal letter here to a comrade, a foxhole brother. This is how Paul starts the letter. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, right, uh, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He puts his name first. Today when we write letters, we put our names last, but in the ancient world you would put it first. So Paul, he's an apostle of Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Here we see that Paul stands in the ranks of the first 12 apostles. Though he encountered Christ after Jesus' earthly ministry, he's no less sanctioned by God as a leader, as an apostle. Elsewhere he'll speak about being appointed by God to the gospel work of being apostle. His apostleship will give him some street cred with the churches, the ability to speak with authority so that they will listen and he can instruct them. But note how he words this. Paul's office of apostle, it wasn't something that he went out and found on ZipRecruiter. Right? He didn't network with friends on LinkedIn. That's not how he got this role of apostle. He says his role of apostle was given to him by the will of God. God willed it, and it came true. There was a divine initiative in Paul's appointment. It was a God-birthed destiny. Our gracious Father put Paul exactly where he needed to be for Paul's development and the redemption of the church and the growth of God's people. He willed it. And note that his calling came with a job description of sorts. Look in verse 1. He was to act according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That's another way of phrasing what we would say the gospel. He was according to act according to the gospel. Now Paul is going to make a link between the fact that God called him as an apostle and God calls other to himself in Jesus. All right? You have to catch the link between Paul's appointment and your own divine calling to God himself by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. Further down in the text, he's going to make this gospel connection clearer if you skip down to verse 8. In verse 8, he's going to unpack this gospel this is what he says. For the gospel, by the power of God. Whose power? It's God's power. Who saved us and called us. See the connection there between calling and saving? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why? Why would God save you? Well, it's not because of your works. God did not look at you and say, oh, you're obeying so greatly. You're so nice. You're so pleasant. You're so morally superior. I'm going to save you. That's not Paul's vision of salvation. It's not because of works. But why? Because of his own purpose. He willed it. 
Before eternity, God looked ahead and he willed that you be saved. And the text says, by grace, by his purpose and by grace, he has saved you. Grace means you didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you anyway. He rescued you, gave you life. He gave it to us in Jesus before the ages began. Verse 9. Verse 10 says, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Jesus was the focal point of your salvation. His appearance started a new age of salvation for the cosmos. And look closely. The last part of verse 10, the last phrase. What did Jesus do? He abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is your encouragement from the life of Paul today. God wills you to life. Jesus brought life and immortality by the will of God. He creates this in yourself. It's amazing if you stop to think about it. Yesterday we had some problems with our air conditioning in my house. One room is not getting the air it's supposed to. And I remember sitting there with my kids in a moment in this tiny little room that's not getting air. And I looked at the vent and I just willed that the air conditioner would come through it. Didn't work. Doesn't work with people like that. But with God, he wills salvation in you. And when he does it, there is life. And life abundance in Jesus Christ. In response to all the evil in the world, God sent his son Jesus to bring life and immortality for his people. You just must trust and repent to find that life. When you do, you'll find that God gives Jesus himself to you. This is truly, ultimately, going to be our hope during this season of COVID-19, right? You'll be touched by one of three things during this season. You'll either be touched by sickness and death, or you'll be touched by the fear of sickness and death, or you'll be touched by someone who is fearing sickness and death. And in the midst of all of this, we must remember that only Jesus brings life and immortality. The whole culture is talking about life. Now is the time for us to be comforted, if ever, in Jesus' immortality and life that he brings. So let this promise comfort your heart today. That's just a three-verse snapshot of Paul's life. Look at his life and see that God wills you to life in Jesus. This comfort can empower you to kick all the way to the wall to persevere in your life in Christ. But now let's turn to Timothy. We looked at Paul. Let's turn to Timothy. Who's this guy? Timothy is the guy that Paul had met some 15 years earlier. Timothy was about 20 years old when he met Paul. Paul was an older man. I'm not sure how old, but he's older than Timothy. And now 15 years later, Timothy's about in his mid to upper 30s now. He's receiving this letter from prison from Paul. 
Timothy had been sent to Ephesus to work in the church there. Timothy's background is interesting. Uh, he is of mixed ethnicity or heritage. He had a Gentile father, a Jewish mother, and Ephesus was the same way. It was a very diverse city, so he's a perfect dude to minister there. He'd been sent there by Paul. And what I want you to see here from Timothy's life first is that God grows you using his people and his gifts. God will grow you up using his people and his gifts. Look there in verse 2. Paul writes, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience that I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night as I remember your tears. I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. Man, first thing that strikes me here is how intimate Paul's language here is. It's affectionate. It's tender. He longs to see Timothy. What does he remember about him? He remembers his tears. He says, you're my beloved child. I pray for you all the time. You see that Paul is more than a co-worker in Timothy's life. He's a close mentor. We also see that Timothy was impacted by others in his life. Immensely by his older family members. If you look in verse 5. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. And in your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. You see how the baton of faith is passed? From older believer to younger believer. That's what God wants you to see here. You're going to grow through God using other people. Shar Walker is a talented black woman who's a speaker and a writer for the North American Mission Board. North American Mission Board does the work of Paul. They're planting churches. And she recently shared about her own mentor in the faith. Listen to what Shar wrote. She was speaking of a woman named Gail. She said, she was the grandmother of two, and I was single in my 20s. Our time together when we met, it varied. I usually went to her house, and we drank tea. Sometimes it was structured. Sometimes we studied God's Word together. Other times, it was more informal and fluid, and she let me talk and ask questions, or we cooked together. We would go on a walk. Our time together always incorporated prayer. If we weren't at her house praying, we were serving together at a weekly potluck where we engaged people in the community. We built relationship. We also went to the same Bible study and prayer groups. If Gail taught me anything, she taught me how to pray and how to train my first response in times of anxiety or crisis to be prayer before flying into fix-it mode. You can hear the impact that this woman had, this woman Gail had on this woman Shar, and now Shar is working to spread the gospel. This is the question. Are you now letting an older Gail or Eunice or Paul speak into your life so that you can grow? If you're on the older side of the spectrum, just reverse it. Who are you speaking to to help them grow? The biblical map for growing is through these types of relationships. Is your failure to make strides against anxiety or make strides in neighbor love connected to a failure 
of you connecting to older believers? Think that through. God will grow you using his people. I talked about swimming earlier. If you go to these swim meets where the little kids are swimming, the first thing I notice is as the little ones are swimming, they have an adult or a teenager in the swim lane with them. And my first reaction as the father, old school, probably not the best reaction, but it was kind of like, ah, come on, Get, let the kids swim. You don't have to hold them, right? Uh, but then as I, as I was watching them and I zeroed in, uh, the person, the helper, the spotter isn't actually helping them. They're not pulling them along. They're just there and they're using encouraging words, standing beside them the whole time. Come on, don't stop. Keep kicking. Come on, keep kicking. Keep kicking. You're okay. Keep kicking. You can be that to another person or you can receive that in the Christian life. Someone to encourage you as you're persevering. Look in verse 6. God will grow you using other people. But here's another way in verse 6. God will grow you using his gospel power. Verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame, what? The gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy has been given a gift from God. We're not told exactly what it is. That doesn't really matter as much. As much as you knowing that God gives his people gifts, right? Timothy's told to fan his into flame. The word there in the Greek, and as opereo, it's present active indicative. It's the only time this word's used in the Greek New Testament. It simply means a rekindling of a fire, keeping a fire going, adding more coals to one that is dying out. Rather than being afraid to use his gifts, Timothy is told to exercise his gifts and renew them in power and self-control and in love. And we can learn from this. Like Timothy, God will grow you as you use your gifts. Currently reading through a biography of Ulysses S. Grant. It's really funny. I, I don't know if you do this, but I was following somebody on Twitter who I respect and they said, hey, I just picked up this book, this biography, and it's been really good. So I saw the picture of it, and I said, well, I got smart, smarter than me. I want to I learn. So I ordered the book, and when I got the book, I thought, I'll read it, take it to the beach when I'm on vacation, and I'll read it there. And I'm not kidding. I got the book in the mail. The picture I saw was two-dimensional, right? When I got the book in the mail, it was like twice the size of my Bible. <laughs> it was huge. It was like, oh, I could take it to the beach and use it as an anchor, maybe. But I wasn't going to read that in a week. But I have started it, and it's a good book. And what I didn't know is that Ulysses S. Grant was a prodigious horseman. At six years old, he was riding bareback. And he would stand on the horse sideways on one leg and grab onto the mane, and he could ride a horse at full gallop. People in the village, grown men, would bring them his horses that they could not break, and he was kind of like a horse whisperer guy with gentleness. Grant would speak to the horses and be gentle, and he would break in the horses for them. Later, when he got to West Point, he wasn't a very great student, but except in one class, equestrian class, 
And when he got up in equestrian class, he excelled and got to the first of the class. They even raised the bar. They had the grant standard, everybody else's standard. And then they would raise the bar when his horse came up to jump, and he would excel. Later in the Mexican War, Grant was leading his troops. Some decision-making wasn't that great, but it came to one point in the battle when he had to lead his troops through a town to accomplish an objective, and he knew if, as they went through, people were going to be firing at him. So Grant hops on the horse, and he does trick riding, and he rides it sideways so that the body of the horse is here, and he is here, and the shooters are over there, and he gallops full speed through town to save the day riding cockeyed on a horse. I thought, man, here's a guy who knows how to use his gifts. He's developing the gifts that God gave him, and he's excelling, and he's serving others. What a picture of how you can be in the church. This can be vocationally, your gifts. It can be in the church, all to serve the kingdom. Pastor down the road, Tony Morita, says, there's no room for sluggishness in the Christian life. There's room for yes, for rest. Yes, there's room for rest, but not laziness or passivity or timidity. They shouldn't characterize you as a believer. God wants to grow you using your gifts, like, just like he did Timothy, all right? So as we pause here in verse 7, I want to go back and retread in 2 Timothy, God is calling you to kick all the way to the wall. Persevere in your Christian life. Remembering the gospel work in you. Two things. God wills you to life. And God grows you using people and gifts. Alright, let's keep going. All of that is under the heading Remember God's gospel work in you. All right? Remember God's gospel work in you. Here's the second major heading that you see here in the scripture. Remember God's work for you. Remember God's work for you. Talk about God's work in you. He's calling you to life. He's giving you gifts. He's stirring you up to meet with other people and to grow. But let's look at the work God has for you. Now, by for you... I simply mean that he has a mission for you as his disciple. If you're following Christ, he has work for you. If you're looking for direction or purpose or fulfillment, 2 Timothy is a book for you because God is calling you to gospel activity. Now, to be clear, all of your activity is spirit-empowered. When the Bible calls you to something, it's not as if it's saying, God's going to do his part and you do your part. So it's not that simple. God knows that the Spirit underlies, it empowers every single work you do, and yet, Paul is comfortable saying, you have some responsibilities. He's not denying that the Spirit is working, but he's saying, let me give you some responsibility. Here, he gives us three. So in this text, we'll find three challenging gospel works that God has for you. All right, He's calling you to these three things from the text. Here's the first one. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Skip on down to verse 12. But I am not ashamed. Here's his reasons why. 
For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Hopefully you can tell from those verses what Paul is getting at. He says, your gospel work that I have for you is to not be ashamed of the gospel. If you put that positively, it would be God is calling you to be proud of the gospel. God is calling you to be proud of of the gospel. Paul gives two reasons why he is proud. First, it's beautiful how he says it. He knows whom he has believed. I can be proud of the gospel story because I know the main character, Jesus. Lots of narratives in our culture today. I can listen to them but not own them. But I can own the gospel because I know the main character is Jesus. The second reason, Paul is convinced Jesus can guard his life. Jesus can guard his life. I am convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That day is the day that he meets Jesus face to face. He knows Christ can take care of him. So he is going to be proud of the gospel. There's a lot in the gospel to be proud of. When Jesus thinks about his own story, it might be a little broader than you think. When Jesus stood up himself in Luke 4 to talk about the coming of himself, the Messiah, remember what he said? In Luke 4, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He was quoting Isaiah, and he said, Because he's anointed me to pro- proclaim the good news. And what was it? It's, well, it's news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rest, that's all good news. Rest for God's people. Liberty for those who are captive by sin and by other machinations. This is nothing to be ashamed of. We look at Jesus' life. He lived perfectly as the new Israel. He was crucified as a substitute for others, sacrificing himself. He rose on the third day and he brought in the dawn of an entirely new creation. That's something to be proud of. Paul says to Timothy, you must remember Be proud of the gospel, particularly when you're interacting with others in our culture. He doesn't say act proud. (laughs) Not when you be a proud person. But the gospel is worthy to be proud of. Here's an example. I listened to a podcast by a guy named Kerry Newhoff. Uh, He's just a guy who, a Christian guy who's trying to engage the culture. And he had a pastor on the podcast. And listen to what the pastor said that relates to being proud of the gospel when talking to unbelievers. He said, people now value being true to themselves over being a good person. All right, this wasn't the same 20 or 30 years ago. If you went out into the culture, people would highly value, I'm a good person. Now, what's highly valued is, I want to be true to myself. So, how can we evangelize with that different mindset? We need to approach evangelism with an argument for why having your identity in Jesus 
is better than the identity that someone is currently chasing. All right? We have to find a way to take the plot line of the culture and give it a better ending in Jesus. It's headed towards a destructive ending. We have to give it a good ending in Jesus. For example, here's how you might do that. Talking to somebody, you can say, you think the meaning of life, I can tell by the way you're living, you're thinking the meaning of life is to be free. True to yourself, free. But you're actually not as free as you think you are because we all have to live for something, right? Everybody has to live for something and whatever that thing is that you're living for, it will enslave you. How? Well, you're going to feel guilty and shameful because you'll never feel like you can actually live up to that identity. I don't care what identity it is. There's no identity like the one you can find in Jesus Christ. Why did a pastor say it like this? Because you and I have been set free from harmful, sinful identities. And now, according to Romans 6, we are happy bond servants in Jesus. Everybody's following something. We're following Jesus. And we're happy because our identity now is as a follower, as a child of God. Child of God who didn't have to work to please his father. God granted that to us. There's no more fulfilling, greater, stable identity than that. As a child of God, we must be proud of the gospel and share with people how their identity can be best found in Jesus. One pastor put it this way. Think about this. He says, we need to think more about gospel gossiping. Gospel gossiping. What did he mean by that? Gossiping's usually a bad thing. You know what gossip is. When you leave here, you might have a natural tendency to want to criticize somebody. Maybe the pastor. <laughs> if you get tempted, just turn that towards J.D., the music guy, okay? Now, you might be tempted. That's a joke, kind of. <laughs> you know what it means to gossip. It's, it's, it's speak about somebody in a way that defames them, dishonors them, otherwise hurts their character. It's been said that gossip is what you never say to somebody's face. It's the RPG that lands and explodes the fabric of the church. Well, what if that natural longing got infused with the supernatural saline solution of the Holy Spirit? And instead of speaking to defame somebody, you go out of here and you speak to the fame of Jesus. See the difference? That's gospel gossiping. You're speaking to the fame of Jesus. Man, I long for the time where we would go to the swimming pool and the coffee shop and to our keyboards online and we're speaking more of the gospel than criticizing other people who are believers. We must be proud of the gospel. We must be proud of who Jesus Christ is. Is. So let's not slink back or sink down, but let's keep swimming all the way to the wall and realize that God has a mission for you today. Be proud of the gospel. Secondly, another gospel challenge that we find in the text. 
If you're here ready to change from the word of God, here's a second one for you. It's the second half of that same verse, verse 8. Look at it. He starts the verse by saying, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me of his prisoner, but instead share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the counter, the opposite of being timid about the gospel is not only being proud, but it's being so committed to it that you are willing to suffer for it. God's work for you is to suffer for the gospel. I read a book recently called God's Side Vision, and it, it's a story of revivals around the world. And there was a story about uh, post-World War II, Kenya, in which two things were happening at the same time. People were coming back in the 50s uh, from the war. It was, it, was, it was over, and there was a group of uh, Kenyan nationalists called the Mau Mau, who wanted to kick the British Empire out of Kenya. And they took it as one of their foundational principles to deny Christianity. Say, if you follow Christ, you can't be a part of the Mau Mau. And a civil war broke out. Well, at the same time the civil war was going on, there was also a revival. So you had many Kenyans coming to Jesus while one of the civil war armies was saying, if you don't deny Jesus, we will persecute you. And the story in the book was about a missionary who went to a, a, a famous Kenyan preacher. Everybody was talking about this guy and how powerful his message was. And so the missionary went to hear this guy preach. And as he showed up, he was surprised when the preacher took the podium, half of his face was drooping. It was partially paralyzed. And he had a gash along the other side of his face. And he stood up and he said, I have been attacked for claiming Jesus by the Mau Mau group. And yet, his message was one of freedom. Freedom and rescue in Jesus Christ. This man was willing to suffer for the gospel. And that's what Paul says. We must have a willingness to suffer. Now, in our culture, you'll find out quickly, if you're really following Christ, there are things you can do as a Christian that are going to get you a nice pat on the back, right? Working with the poor in our culture is a Christian thing, but it's also something that our culture seems to affirm, right? You can, you can adopt a child. You can help someone economically develop their business. All of these things are Christian-oriented, but also people who are unbelievers are going to say, well, yeah, of course, that's a great thing. But the moment you start telling them Jesus Christ is the only way you're going to get to heaven, the pat on the back is God. Whoop. And then suffering may come. Paul says, this is the lot of a Christian. We must be prepared to suffer. As we start a new Bible book series, my hope is that you would actually jump in and participate and read the book at home. It's a great way to study the Bible and learn more. Second Timothy is nice because I read through it out loud this week and it only took 10 minutes. Whole book. It's only four chapters. 10 minutes. This week on Netflix, the number one show was Unsolved Mysteries. That's 50 minutes. Five times, one episode. Or you could read the Word of God. Or you could do both. Not being legalistic, but I am saying 
you would do well to read through the entire book. And as you do, as I did this week, suffering comes up throughout the whole book. The major theme. It came up seven times in four chapters. And you ask, why? Why does Paul talk about suffering so much? It's not particularly pleasant. It's not attractional. Why? Two reasons. First, he wants you to be prepared. You are going to suffer in your life as a Christian. Somebody's going to turn against you. Paul knows it. Christ knows it. Don't be surprised. Trust that he is in it. Secondly, Paul himself, as he was writing the letter, was suffering. So it makes good sense for him to talk about suffering. In a sobering way, if you look down in verse 15, Paul tells how his own group of friends and workers responded to Paul's own suffering. Look in verse 15. Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus, Hermogenes. He's probably using hyperbole when he says all turned away from me because we have Timothy committed to him. But get the point. Paul's fellow Christian workers distanced themselves in Paul's worst moment. Why? We found out in the next verse. Look in verse 16. Why did they run away from Paul when he was suffering? Verse 16 tells us, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus. Crazy name. Not a dinosaur name. A Greek name. You should remember it because Anesiphorus was the man who did not turn away from Paul. He often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. But when I arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly. That's why they turned away from Paul. They were ashamed of his imprisonment. They were ashamed at his suffering. Paul's persecution was just too messy. It disrupted their plans for themselves. It was restrictive. They found suffering burdensome. Though they wanted no part of it, so they left Paul there to suffer alone. Consequently, Phagellus and Hermogenes will go out in the annals of history of two men who melted and wilted under the pressure of suffering, which raises the question, what will be your legacy? Will your children tell your story and remember that when suffering came, you backed off of Jesus a little bit? Or will you be numbered with Paul and Anesiphorus as ones who stood firm and knew that Christ was with you amidst the suffering? So we've seen now two challenging things that God gives you. If you don't want to be challenged, don't read 2 Timothy. Two challenging things. First, be proud of the gospel. Second, suffer for the gospel. And lastly, verse 14, Paul says this, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now note the reminder here that all good works you do as a Christian come from the Holy Spirit. He said, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, 
This week I was texting with someone here in the church and they got a, a task done and they put in the text, hey, I got this task done. Thank you, God, for doing this task. And I thought, man, that's cool. This person recognized that all that we do is empowered by the Spirit. That's why he says in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. Good deposit, what is that? That's the gospel again. Another way he says the gospel is good deposit. Why? When Christ left and ascended to heaven, he left us with the precious dynamic story of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it needs guarding. The gospel at Ephesus needed guarding. There were false teachers around. Now, it's been said that Paul wasn't meaning in his letter, as you read through it, to describe the false teachers as much as refute them. So we never actually find out exactly what the false teachers were saying, but we have hints of it because we can catch it in his language as he refutes others. We know in Ephesus, false teaching came from within the church instead of without it. We know it seems to be interest in unhealthy speculations and genealogies. We're the things that people will fight over in the church. But genealogies was one of them. And myths and speculations. Some apparently thought Jesus had already returned and the final resurrection had already happened. So they were quarreling about this. And the leaders were purveyors of greed and immorality and deception, these false teachers. Paul says we've got to guard the gospel. In our day, we have our own inbred challenges. Here's a big one that the churches face. People are uh, falsely taught in our churches today that this whole Christianity deal is about being a good person. And if, if you're a good person, not like those bad people, one day you'll go to heaven. We have kind of a distance view of God. As one writer said, we think of God as a cosmic therapist or a divine butler, ready to help out whenever we need him. He exists, but isn't really a part of our daily lives. We're supposed to be good people, but each person needs to find out what's good for them. Good people go to heaven. We shouldn't be stifled by organized religion, people telling us what to do. That's a false teaching that's alive and well within American Christianity today. And the thing that's so dangerous about any false teaching is that it always will have a little bit of shred of truth in it, right? Half partial truth. Like this false teaching says the key to Christianity is being a good person. Well, that's partially true because in the Bible, God does call us to be holy and to be righteous, and to be good. But what's missing is the key element of the gospel. It's the notion that we're all totally depraved because of the fall. Human nature is thoroughly corrupted and sinful. You're not essentially good with some evil sprinkled in. Paul said you're dead to God. You're dead in your trespasses. Doesn't mean you always do the worst thing just means you're thoroughly corrupted. You're soiled at the death of you. What you need is some external goodness to fix the problem. This is where Christ comes in. The Bible says that God declares you good and right and holy based on what Christ did for you on the cross. 
He imputes the righteousness of Jesus to you if you trust in him and love him and you repent. He declared you good in Christ, but it's not from your own moral good doing. It's from the exterior righteousness of Jesus himself. And you can see how both the false teaching and the true teaching has a notion of goodness, right? That's why it's so tricky. We have to be on guard. I told you I went to the uh, pool this last week. I was there and I was uh, reading and studying the sermon and the kids were swimming. And uh, at my house, one of my kids is particularly interested in science and critters, so we're all the time finding animals. And as I was there, um, this might gross you out, but a huge spider walks across the deck of the pool. Like that big, if you'd have been there and you don't like spiders, you would have ran. It's a really big spider, but I happened to study in another life, in school, in college, when I rode my horse and buggy to college, I studied animal biology, so I know about these spiders, and so I went over and picked it up, because I knew it was harmless, and I let it crawl on me, and I let my son have it, and it's crawling on my son, and then I look around, and because I'm there with mainly pool moms, I'm the only dude there, <laughs> I look around, and all these mothers are like, I mean, they're giving me the word, and they're, they're actually guarding their kids away from me, so... I, we bottled it up really quickly, and everybody was saved. Uh, that's the funny part of the story. The reason I bring it up is the spider we found is what's called a trapdoor spider. You may know about these guys, but they will actually burrow into the ground, and then they will take leaves, and they will camouflage over their hole, and they'll make a trapdoor, and then they'll put a tripwire out. And when a bug comes along, doo -doo 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 -doo, hits the tripwire, the spider springs, and he's got him. He brings him back into the burrow, and he sucks his life out. Now, that's gross. It's gross, but it's intentionally gross because I think that's a wonderful picture of a false teacher. They will camouflage themselves. They will try to trip you up on a partial truth. Eventually, their goal is to snag you, bring you to themselves, and to suck the life out of you. So we must guard against these guys. You think, well, how can I do it? How can I guard against these false teachings? I want to obey the scriptures. How do I do it? Well, first off, the lion's share of the work seems to be done in the early church by the elders. So let's let those guys handle a lot of it. But there's also a way you can play your part. And the best way I know is to start simple. You identify untruths by knowing the truth, right? You identify false things by knowing what is true. We can start very simply and read our Bibles with an eye towards truth. Imagine you're on a hike and there's a stream, a deep river that crosses your trail. You've got to get across it. You have to ford the river. The way you do that is not by identifying every deep hole that you would drown in. The way you cross is to find a stepping stone. And stay on the stepping stones. You must do that with your Bible. You must stay on the path. Read it, read it, read it, and read it some more so that you will know the truth. If we do this, we should begin to develop a sort of heresy herd immunity. Right? 
If you know the truth, and 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 you know the truth, there's not going to be any place for the virus of false teaching to take hold and to live. Let's read our Bible. That's my challenge to you. Can you read 2 Timothy this week? Ten minutes. Give it a whirl. Help us guard against the false teaching. Now, let's land this whole plane in the Jesus airport here. As we conclude, let's bring it back to Jesus. At the end of the Bible, Revelation, God is going to spend two chapters talking to churches on how we can grow. And in one of those chapters, Revelation 2, he addresses the very church that Timothy is in, the church at Ephesus. All right? I want you to listen to what Christ himself says to this church. Because as he's speaking to Ephesus, he's also speaking to you. All right? And I want you to hear this. Because in verse 2 of Revelation 2, Jesus says to the members of Timothy's church, he says this, I know, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And I found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for my name's sake. And that you have not grown weary brother and sister. I want you to hear these words today. Take heart. Jesus says here twice, I know your situation. I know you're persevering. Let that land. He's not far away. He is near. He knows what you're going through. That should be your comfort this morning. He is here knowing you and wanting to be known. But also I want you to be challenged. Because Jesus doesn't quit there. If this is for your ears today, then let them hear it. Jesus continues in verse 4 and he says, But I have this against you, Timothy's church, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Sean preached from Exodus last week. And he told us that as we're enduring in the gospel, our first priority must be to treasure Christ. He gets it from Jesus. Jesus looks at Ephesus and says a lot of good things. And he also says, I'm afraid you're drifting from treasuring Christ. Some of us have left Jesus. Maybe you've left Jesus. You've fallen head over heels in love with some other desire, some part of creation. Now's the time to come back. Now's the time to run back to Jesus. Together we can conquer these sinful urges and adore Jesus Christ together. We have to keep kicking all the way to the wall and finish the race. If you do, Revelation has this promise for you. Listen to what Jesus said. To the one who conquers sin and Satan, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That's the person standing at the end of the lane. He's granting you to eat of the tree of life and live forever in the paradise of God with Jesus himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for your perseverance in us. Thank you for carrying us forward. Thank you for all of the blessings you've given us. And I pray, I pray don't leave us, be near to us and let us remember the gospel, the work you've done in us and the work 
you have for us to do as we go forward this week, treasuring Christ in his name. Amen.